Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, please. Sometimes there are messages that I study and prepare for that I just ask the Lord to help me convey exactly what it is that the Lord is imprinting on my own heart. And then I realize sometimes that, well, this was actually just for you. So I'm just going to give you what was for me, and prayerfully it's a blessing or a challenge, uh, even maybe even convicting for you. I'm going to preach this afternoon on this subject, powerless people, powerless people. And out of Mark chapter 9, and we find the story that you're familiar with of the father who had a demon-possessed boy uh, who brought him to the Lord to have the demon cast out. Jesus was not there at the time, and so he asked his disciples if they could do it. And they couldn't. They tried and they couldn't. And it discouraged the father. And when Jesus came back into the picture, he said, what's going on here? And the father said, I came for, for deliverance for my son and, and your disciples couldn't do it. And in that context and in that passage, you know the famous uh, thought or prayer of this man, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And so you're familiar with this passage of Scripture. And so for the sake of time, we'll not read all of it right now and then go back and break it down. We are going to unpack these verses, but we'll work through it as we go. Okay, so just hold your place here and we'll get to it in just a second. Uh, There was a a man who who was a, a scholar who lived between 1225 and 1274 A.D. His name was Thomas Aquinas. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a man who left a... Uh, an indelible impression on the fabric of his time. There was another scholar who said of Thomas Aquinas, he said to him, Behold, Master, the church can no longer say as the apostle Peter, silver and gold have I none. And the reference is, is that we're very wealthy. But Aquinas was quick to reply. He said, Alas, neither can we say what follows, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Thomas Aquinas understood a truth that many of us never really get a hold of. And that's this, that the measure of success for a church, for a ministry, it's not how fine its buildings are, it's not how large its offerings are, it's not how many people are in attendance. The real measure of success for a church or a ministry is whether or not it operates in the power of God. That is also true in the Christian life. The measure of success in the Christian life is operating in the power of God. In this passage, the Lord teaches us about the most important ingredient of a successful Christian life. The disciples that we'll look at in this text lacked that ingredient at the time, and they ended up failing. And we're told in verse 18, if you look there, in verse 18 of this text, that the disciples of Jesus failed in their attempt 
to cast out a demon of a little boy. And I want you to note this because the father sums up their efforts very clearly by saying this. He says, And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. They could not. The father sums up their efforts in this one statement, they could not. And he was right. He came to these men hoping to find some help for his family, but he found that these men had no help to offer. They could not. They failed. Why did they fail? They failed because they lacked the spiritual power that they needed. They lacked spiritual power because they were missing an important ingredient that assures spiritual power. And I want to look into these verses today because we need the message that they teach us. We're here, all of us, we're here. If we know the Lord, we're we're members of a New Testament church, we ought to have this thought and this heart about us, that we are living in these days, dark and sinful days, and we're trying to live lives that are victorious over sin and lives that are pleasing to the Lord. But too many times it is said of us, and they could not. The problem is the same as that of the Lord's disciples. Often we lack the necessary ingredient required for spiritual power. And I want to preach to you on the subject of powerless people. And by God's help, unpack these verses. And we'll discover three different things. First of all, the lack of spiritual power. Secondly, the Lord of spiritual power. And then thirdly, the lessons of spiritual power. Let's pray and then we'll get into this text. Lord, I pray that you'd use your word again this afternoon. Lord, give me your spirit, your ability to convey these truths, these thoughts to your people, Lord, as you have imprinted them on my own heart. Lord, I just pray that your word would would be so valuable to us uh, today and from here on out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's consider, first of all, the lack of spiritual power. I'm going to direct your attention to verse 14 down through verse 19. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the disciples, or the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Here we find the lack of spiritual power. Now, verses 1 through 13 of this chapter really sets the stage for our text. We won't take the time to read all of verses 1 through 13, but I'll just tell you about it. In verses 1 through 13, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain, 
And Jesus is transfigured before them there on the mountain. The glory of his heavenly state becomes visible on that mountaintop. Those three men, they saw Jesus in his glory. They saw Moses and Elijah. They listened to them talk to Jesus about his impending death on the cross. They even heard the voice of God the Father as he praises his son, Jesus Christ. These men had seen some pretty amazing things. They had seen the majesty of Jesus Christ. And surely they were overflowing with excitement as they come down from that mountain. But when they arrive back in the valley below, things are not so joyful. In verse 14 of our text, we see that Jesus and his three disciples had come down from the mountain and they find the other disciples engaged in an argument with the scribes. Verse 14, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. What they found when they came back to the crowd is that apparently this distraught father had brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus for healing. But Jesus wasn't there when he came, when he arrived. And so he asks his disciples if they would heal his son. And the Bible tells us that they could not cast out the demon. And because of that, the scribes are mocking them for their lack of power. Now look at verses 16 through 18. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude, here's the father who said he brought his son who had the dumb spirit. In verse 18, he describes what's going on. Wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. And so Jesus walks up on this scene And he asks for an explanation of what's going on. And the father, in agonizing detail, describes the pitiful condition of his son. And every verb that the father uses in verse 18 is in the present tense. The father's language describes a horrible, ongoing, continual situation of demonic torment. It's a sad state of affairs that we read about here. And when Jesus hears the details of what's going on, he voices his own dismay over all that he has heard. Look at verse 19. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. You notice the first word, When Jesus begins to speak, he says, Oh, oh, faithless generation. The word oh is a word of deep anguish. It was usually reserved for a time of burdened prayer. People would come before God and they would cry out of their hearts and they would lift up their oh's unto the Lord. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a time... In your, heart, in your life, and when your heart was breaking, your heart was burdened, your soul was venting its pain, and it cries out, Oh God, unto the Lord. Maybe there has been 
Or maybe there is currently something in your life that you can't get victory over and you have been crying out to God, Oh God, I need this. I need you. Well, Jesus is expressing His displeasure toward everyone assembled there that day. Why why does no one seem to be able to believe? And this is a pretty sad scene that we read. But you know what the saddest aspect of this whole scene is? It's not the condition of the boy. The saddest part is not the condition of the boy. The saddest part is not the spirit of the scribes. It's not the anguish of the father. The saddest part of this whole account is the powerlessness of the disciples. And I say that because of this. These men had seen Jesus perform countless amazing miracles. And yet they lacked genuine faith still. These men had even cast out demons themselves, brethren. Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. In verse 7. The Bible says, And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. Now skip to verse 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Here are the disciples themselves. Not only had they seen Jesus do miracles, but they had power to do them themselves. They had cast out demons before. They had performed the miracles themselves. But now it is said of them, and they could not. Let me make this application here. In many ways, these disciples are a picture of Christians today. Like them, we have the reputation that we have power with God. These men had a reputation that they had power. Else why would the Father come because Jesus wasn't there? Why would the Father turn to them and say, you help my son, you cast out the demon? They had the reputation that they had power. And as Christians, we have the reputation that we have power. This father was originally coming to Jesus, but he thought the disciples could help his son. But they lacked the power to make a difference. And as a result, they lost... Listen, listen, as a result, they lost face with the father, the crowds, and with the scribes. They were mocking them for their lack of power and ability. And let me say this, friend. In the Christian life today, do you know that you have all that you need to exist in this world? Do you know that you have all that you need to live a victorious Christian life? You have all that you need already. I want to look at several passages of Scripture here. And look at what power we have with God, with Christ in the Christian life, and how God wants us to be living and enables us to live. Look in Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at several. So I want you to turn with me here. Romans 6 and verse 4. 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. What is, you tell me, what is God's expectation and what is God's enabling uh, in our life? Uh, what, is it, what does it enable us to do, according to this verse? That just like as Christ was buried and he rose again, he has a brand new life, you also should walk in newness of life. And knowing this, that the old man is crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that from here on out we should not serve sin. Now look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Before we're saved, we're slaves to sin. We don't have any power. We don't have any power to stop. We don't have any power to win. But after we're saved, we have the power of Christ. And he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. From henceforth we shouldn't serve it. Now look at verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Look at chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Romans 8.13 says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. There's ability to crucify the flesh and mortify the deeds of the flesh through the Spirit. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he in chapter 6, in verse 9, he describes... Uh, the, the works of the flesh and, and of this world. And he says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers or extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, this is the lifestyle of unsaved people. And here's what they do. And if this is their lifestyle, mark it down. They're not saved. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. That's how you used to live. But ye are washed. Ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You used to be a fornicator. You used to live this way. You used to be a drunkard. You were that, but now you're washed. Now you're justified. Now you're sanctified because of the Lord Jesus. There's a distinct difference now. You see... The expectation and the ability that God gives 
to live in the Christian life? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Cleanse yourselves from the filthiness of the flesh. You've got the power and the ability to do it. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.16. You should memorize this verse if you haven't. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, in verse 11. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And here's what it does. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We can deny ungodliness and we can deny worldly lusts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2. 1 Peter 4, 2 says that, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. He says, you've been saved. In verse 1, notice, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, and that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. His divine power has given us all that we need to live this life uh, of godliness through the knowledge of the One who's called us to a life of glory and virtue. That means a life of valor and a life of dignity, not a life that is controlled and dominated by sin. Listen, when we claim that we're Christians, we're making a claim to the world. And the claim says, if you need God, we can help you find Him. If your life is broken, we can show you how God can fix it. If your family is falling apart, we can show you how God can put it back together again. If you're lost, we can show you how you can be saved. 
We're making the claim to the world that we are like Christ if we're Christian. And we're different than they are. And we're able to help them. But so many times, we can't even help ourselves. And they could not. And they could not. We're to be Christians, like Christ, not like the world, or live like the world. We're to be like Him. We're part of a New Testament church. The power of God should be on us. The truth of God should be in us. His way should be before us. The Word of God should guide us in our life. But sadly, many times Christians lack what they need most. They lack the power of God. There's no touch of God in their life. There's no power of God to gain victory over sin. The world, the flesh, it keeps coming in and it just wreaks havoc in their life. And oh, that it would never be said of us. And they could not. I just can't get victory over this thing in my life. I just can't seem to gain a stronghold and ground. This thing, it just keeps running me down. There's no reason for it. Because of the power of Christ. But they could not. The lack of spiritual power. I want you to go back to our text in Mark 9, and I want you to note the Lord of spiritual power with me. Look at verses 20. Through 27. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowing, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. Here is the Lord of spiritual power. In verse 20, Jesus hears the father's story, and he commands the boy to be brought to him. Notice it again. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground, and wallowing, foaming. 
So get the picture here. When he arrives, the demon in the child recognizes who Jesus is, and he attacks the boy again. The child is gripped by convulsions. He's wallowing around on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. He is mercilessly tormented by this demon. What a pitiful scene. What a pitiful sight. But then notice verse 20 and 21. Because as the child writhes on the ground, Jesus begins to question the father. He says, and he asked the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. So here, the child is writhing on the ground, and Jesus begins to question the father. Why did Jesus do that? Well, it seems that Jesus was attempting to overcome this father's lack of faith. And so Jesus asked him, how long has it been this way? And the father's answer is very graphic and very telling. Look at verse 22. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He tells Jesus that the, all the things that have, that have been going on and that the boy has been this way since he was little, he tells Jesus that the demon attacks the boy repeatedly, trying to burn him to death, trying to drown him in the water. And then... After all of that, the father really bears the true condition of his faith. He looks at Jesus and he says this, But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's a pitiful plea, but it's a plea from a man whose faith is weak. The father, understand this, the father trusted that Jesus could cast the demon out initially. That's why he brought him in the first place. But Jesus wasn't there. And so he had a measure of faith that the disciples could help. And he trusted that the disciples of Jesus could heal his son. And when they failed, this man's faith in Jesus and his abilities began to wane as well. In verse 17, the father had brought his son believing that Jesus could deliver him. But now, notice what he says. He says, if you, if you can do anything, if there's anything that you can do, have some compassion on us and help us. But now look at verse 23. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. When Jesus hears this man's words, Jesus responds immediately. And we don't really get the force of the Lord's words here. As we read it over it, and as we read it in our English Bible, we don't really get the force of Jesus' words. It doesn't really come through to us. But as I was looking at this, and as I was studying this out, it, it, it was pretty clear to me that, that what Jesus was actually saying here to this man was basically, what do you mean if there's anything that I can do? Of course there's something I can do. All you need to do is believe. 
Because anything is possible with me to those who believe. Jesus rebukes the Father for his doubt. And he commands him at this moment to put his faith in Jesus Christ for the healing that his son desperately needs. But you know what, friend? This is the key to what we so desperately need. The key to the power of God is genuine faith. God's power is unlimited. There's nothing that is too great for His power. There's no thing in your life that is too strong that Jesus cannot overcome. But the thing that moves Him to intervene on our behalf is number one, believing that He's able to do it, and then number two, based on that faith, imploring Him to do it. Faith, faith is as simple as coming to God with our problem, believing He's able to solve the problem, and then asking Him to do it. It's really that simple, and yet it's so hard. When the Father hears what Jesus says, He makes one of the most honest and transparent prayers in all of the Bible. He looks at Jesus in verse 24, and he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. What he's saying is, Lord, I do believe in you. Lord, I do believe in your power, but my faith is weak, and I need you to help me grow in it. Now look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and note this, and enter no more into him. The spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was one as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy and never return. Follow me on this, because I'm going to go somewhere with it. Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy and never return. Never return. The demon attacks the child one more time. And the demon comes out, and the child becomes so quiet and so still that people who were looking on thought that he was dead. And then Jesus does what he does best. He reaches down, and he takes the child by the hand, and he lifts him up. And listen, the child rises, and he is free! You got a problem in your life? You've got some sin that consumes you. You've got something that overpowers you, that constantly berates you, that torments you mercilessly and beats you. You can't get victory over it. It plagues you. 
Maybe it's lying. They're always dishonest. And in fear, you tell lies. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's lustful thoughts or lustful actions. Maybe it's pornography in your life that grips you and consumes you. Maybe you constantly operate in fear and not in faith. It doesn't matter what it is. The power of Jesus Christ can set you free. Never to return. Real victory. Oh, I just struggle with this so bad. I just can't get victory over this. And I'm working on it, and I just can't get victory over it. And time, and time, and time, and time, and time again. Constantly. Whose power are you grabbing hold of? Because it sure isn't Christ's. The power of Jesus Christ can set you free, never to return. You and I do not have to live powerless, defeated lives. We don't have to. Now, there are some spiritual lessons that we need to glean here before we move on to the last thought. And I want to share them with you. The first is this. A powerless Christian portrays Jesus Christ in a bad light. A powerless Christian portrays Jesus Christ in a bad light. Because the disciples lacked power to do this, the Father assumed that Jesus lacked power too. And you know when a lost world or even a new believer looks at our lives as Christians... And what they see is deadness or coldness or apathy. The lost assume that Jesus is just as lifeless, just as powerless, and just as dead. Why would I want that? Why do I need that? How many Christians are guilty of false advertising? I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. They claim to have something to offer, but they've got nothing but coldness or dead religion that doesn't help anybody. Listen, you know what? It is, it is time that God's people's lives told the truth about who Jesus is. He changes lives. He changes them forever. Knowing Him is exciting. Knowing Him means that I have power with God he is alive. He is active in my life. He is alive and active in this world. His gospel has power. And we should never be guilty of false advertising. Just like Paul said, there are things that should never once be named among you as saints of God. Because it's a shame. If it is, we need, we need to live up to the name that we claim. Amen? A powerless, defeated Christian portrays Jesus in a bad light. Secondly, here's another lesson. Weak faith is better than no faith at all. 
The father was filled with doubt, but there was still a kernel of faith in his heart. And as a result, he still clung to Jesus. And the Lord delivered his son. You know what? God is not put off by our doubts. We fail, and we're frail people. He's not put off by our doubts. But you know what? Total unbelief slams the door on the power of God in our lives. We've got to remember this. You might have something that is a giant problem in your life. It doesn't take large faith to receive big answers from the Lord. All it takes is genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. Matthew 17 talks about faith as a grain of mustard seed that grows. Or you say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. But you know what Jesus said there? Because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. That's why it doesn't happen. The third lesson is this, that Jesus Christ is still in the lifting up business. Just as Jesus took this poor hurting boy by the hand and lifted him up to a new life, he can do exactly the same for all of those who come by faith. We know that he lifts a dead sinner out of his old life of sin into a new life of Christ. We know that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But he can also lift the cold and apathetic church member out of his defeat and into a life of joy and blessing and fulfillment in the Lord. He can take and lift a burdened believer out of his fears and give a peace that passes all understanding. Nothing shall be impossible. All things are possible to him that believeth. Even that thing in your life that you just can't seem to gain victory over. And I want you to notice, lastly, the lessons of spiritual power in verses 28 and 29 see the lack of spiritual power. We see the Lord of spiritual power. And then verses 28 and 29, the Bible says, And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. In verse 28, when this whole episode is over, and the disciples are alone with Jesus. The disciples who failed to deliver that child, they asked Jesus, why? Why did we fail? Why couldn't we do this? These men were concerned about their spiritual failure, and they should have been. But in verse 29, the answer that Jesus gave them is both simple and telling. His answer is that these men failed because... They lacked spiritual discipline in their life. He said, this kind doesn't come out but by prayer and fasting. Prayer is a state of close communion with the Lord. Prayer is faith in action. It's the vehicle of faith. 
faith is exemplified in prayer. We pray because we believe. And if there's a greater degree of prayer, the likely there's a greater degree of faith. Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. I believe that you can do this. Fasting speaks of a lifestyle of submission and surrender to the Lord. Fasting, though, in itself doesn't have any power, it offers some enhancement. David spoke of humbling his soul with fasting in Psalm 35 and verse 13. To deny oneself the simple pleasure of eating for a season is one way of humbling ourselves before God. God told Solomon that it was when his people would humble themselves and pray, then he would hear from heaven. Fasting is a simple means to demonstrate to God that we are serious about a matter. It demonstrates a willingness to set aside simple pleasures of life, to focus on seeking after the face of the Lord. Prayer and fasting together, they're faith multipliers. These men were not communing with God like they should have been. Neither were they as surrendered to God as they should have been. And as a result, they lacked the power of God to do what they needed to do. Christian, we lack His power for the very same reason. We lack the power of God because we lack spiritual discipline. And the truth of the matter is that if there's something that is continually plaguing us and we cannot get victory over, the reason is because we don't really want to. We don't really want to. Oh, but I do, I do. This thing bothers me. I do, I do. I want, to, I want victory. I want to get over it. You have everything that you could possibly need at your disposal. And you have the power of Christ. If you seek after His heart and you are fully surrendered to the Lord in it, there can be victory. So much victory that it never returns. That's the kind of power that Christ has. The bottom line is that if we're in a state where we can't find victory, we just can't, it's not because there's not power available. It's because that we just aren't that serious. Maybe there's not a level of brokenness yet that needs to be there. A level of total surrender, giving it all to the Lord. How do we find power? How do we find it? Well, first of all, we need to pray. 
And I'm referring to the prayer that truly seeks the face and the will of God. I'm referring to the prayer that assaults the throne of God, refusing to be silenced until the answer from God comes. Genuine, faith-filled prayer is the key that opens the door to power. But we also need to be surrendered. It is God's will that we place everything that we have and everything that we are and everything that we hope for in this life on the altar and become that living sacrifice. Real surrender is something that I think misses us sometimes. And it's something that comes only when God brings us to the very bottom of ourselves and we've got nothing else and we've got nowhere else to go and we've got a choice to make. Either surrender this to the Lord or ruin my life. You know, when I got saved, when I got saved, I came to this crossroads too. And I've given you my testimony before. I knew that I wanted to be saved. I knew that I wanted the Lord in my life. I knew that. I needed it. And when I came forward and I came to, 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 to get saved, Brother Scott Kuzel just started grilling me and asking me questions. What about this in your life? Are you willing to give that up for the Lord? Yeah. The life of sin, that, didn't, that has not brought me joy and fulfillment like it promised. I don't have a problem giving that up. What about this in your life? Are you willing to give that up to the Lord? Absolutely, I'm willing to give that up to the Lord. And on and on down the line, I don't want my sin. And then he looks at me and he says, well, what about your girlfriend? What? What do you mean, give her up? No, I'm not going to give her up. I love this girl as much as I possibly can. We've got plans. We're going to get married. She's going to go to college, and I'm going to do this. We've got all these plans. No, I'm not going to give her up. And he looks at me and says, then you can't get saved. I was like, what? I want to be saved. I want the Lord. He says, you're not really surrendered to God. I went away from that place mad. I went away angry. Because I knew in my heart I wanted to be saved. And he's telling me I can't be because I'm not going to give up my girlfriend. I went away from that place mad. I also went away unsaved. And I don't know how long of time it was, maybe two weeks or so. But there was a definite period of time in there. And I could not get this out of my head. I could not stop thinking about this. I could not get away from this fact. It just kept coming back into my head over and over. You can't get saved. You can't get saved. But I wanted to be. And the Lord just kept closing the walls in on me until I came to this point where I had to make a decision. It is either Christ or it is her or my life. It's really about my life. I was so broken inside because I knew I need Christ. My eternity hangs in the balance here. I know what this, I know what this means. 
And I finally came to the point where I said, I've got to have Christ. But she's not going to understand this. This is going to crush her. She's not going to have any idea or understanding of what this is about. And here's the wrestling match that's going on in my soul. And I finally said, I have to have the Lord. Amen. Amen. I called her up and we met in my car. And I said, you may not understand this. And I don't even expect you to. But I need to be saved. And that means that I need to give up everything of my life for Christ. But I want to. That means me and you. I give it to the Lord. And I surrender it to him. And it did exactly what I thought it might do. To that point in my life, the hardest thing I had really ever come to. After that, I had nothing else. All the things of life were gone. And I still didn't have the Lord. I was so miserable. So miserable. Until I finally, the next Wednesday, I went to church. I sat right down front in the front pew. I had no idea what was preached. But as soon as the pastor said, let's pray, boom, I'm walking forward. Guess who was right behind me? Scott Kuzel. I said, it's over. It's done. I got nothing. I give it all to the Lord. I just need to be saved. Boom. In that moment, that moment, the weight, it was gone. It was gone, and peace flooded my soul and joy can't even describe it except for this what was a hard decision initially became the best and the easiest thing for me that I could have ever done surrendering it to the Lord why did I say that I'm not even sure except for this Sometimes there are things that we think that we need or things that we want in our life. And we hold on to those things. We assign value to that thing. And maybe it's a problem that we have in our life that we want to be free of, but we just can't find victory in it. And we say that we want to, but there's still something. There's still something somewhere that is not fully surrendered to the Lord. And that's why we keep struggling. That's why we keep losing the battle. That's why we keep falling again. Because there's something about me that I still want. And I'm not willing to let it go. But why wouldn't we? 
Jesus Christ is so much bigger and so much better than anything that I could ever want for myself and my life. He's always good all the time. What is it going to hurt for me to just say, Lord, you take it, and I trust you? Because you only do good things. We need to be surrendered to the Lord, and that's where we find power. To pray. To be really surrendered. And then we need to become totally dependent on Him for everything. And until we reach the place where we understand that the power of God does not come because of preaching or because of our singing or because of our working or because of manipulating people and things, the power of God comes when we learn to rest completely in Him. But sometimes that means that we've got to take a step of faith first before we see the power. Like those who had to carry the ark across the Jordan River. God said, you're going to walk across on dry ground. But it's not until the soles of your feet touch the water that you see the power. You know what that means? It means they had to believe it and they had to take the step before they ever saw the power. We needed to obey, just simply obey. And realize that without Christ, we can do nothing. The cure for what ails Christians is found in the Lord's words to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, and we don't have the time to go over there and look at it. But Jesus said the problem is that you've left your first love. We need to fall in love with the Lord again. What we need is the power of God. That power will come when God's people really get serious about seeking His face, then walking in His ways, being obedient, and then leaning on Him for all that we need. What the Father said about the disciples to Jesus was, and they could not. That's a tragic statement. And they could not. May the Lord help us that it's never said of us that we can't gain victory over sin. Because He's given us all that we need to operate and live in His power. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Have our piano player come. Has God spoken to you about a need in your life? Has He spoken to you about your faith, your prayer life, some level of surrender, dependence on Him, something that you haven't gained victory over, but you know the Lord wants you to. He's speaking. Listen.